0: So this next series of podcasts that we're going to bring to you on Sounds of Justice are pre-recorded interviews that we did with authors that we found that would be very helpful in equipping you towards racial healing. So the first voice that we're going to bring to you today will be Dominique Gillard. He is a wonderful young man, and he's the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. He is the author of Rethinking Incarceration and Advocating for Justice That Restores, which won the 2018 Book of the Year Award for Innovosity Press. Gillard also serves as the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelicals for Justice. In 2015, he was selected as one of the ECC's 40 Under 40, Leaders to Watch. And he's, ha- he's also written articles that were featured in the Huffington Post. And you can find more about Dominic Gillard at dominicgillard.com. So enjoy this conversation on rethinking incarceration.
1: You're listening to Sounds of Justice, A Be The Bridge podcast.
0: Um, There's a lot of people who are part of our Be The Bridge community who have actually uh, written books. And so we want to highlight those voices, um, those voices that are involved in Be The Bridge. And they have written a book. And the book correlates with our mission and our vision for Be The Bridge. And so the first person we're going to talk to today is Dominic Gilliard. He wrote a book called Rethinking Incarceration. And so, um, Dominic uh, was has been really involved in the Be The Bridge community um, within the Facebook group. I'll just tell you this, he told me um, probably maybe a, a few months ago, no, well, probably about a year ago actually, he said, sister, more power to you. You know, I'm writing this book. I'm not going to be as vocal (laughs) within that group uh, because we know the group can be um, pretty tough. But we're thankful for his voice um, during the early um, phases of Be the Bridge, the Be the Bridge group. Um, Dominic, um, he is the director of racial righteousness and reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, He serves on the Board of Directors for the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelical for Justice. In 2015, he was selected as one of the ECC's 40 Under 40 leaders to watch. Um, You've seen him uh, within the Huffington Post. He was named one of the Black Christian leaders changing the world. Um, He's an ordained minister. He um, served as a pastoral minister in Atlanta, Chicago and Oakland. He was the executive pastor of New Hope Covenant Church in Oakland, California, and also served, as an o- o- served in Oakland as an associate pastor of the Convergence Covenant Church. He also was a campus minister at North Park University and the Racial re- uh, Righteous Director for ECC's ministry initiatives in the Pacific Southwest Conference. Uh, with articles published in the CCDA Theological Journal and so many other things. He's earned a bachelor's degree in African American Studies from Georgia State University and a master's degree in history from East Tennessee State University with the emphasis on race, gender, and class in the United States. He also earned a MDiv from North Park Seminary and where he served as an adjunct professor teaching Christian ethics, theology, and reconciliation. You know, I know one of the things about your book, you know, one of the things you said, the book provides a historical analysis of mass incarceration and a biblical basis for reframing how we teach and preach about justice. And, um, you know, I'm a justice girl. And I love to talk about justice in your book. I don't know if you guys, I want to show you this. If you haven't um, actually purchased this, we want you to purchase this book. I think there's a link that um, Elizabeth posted in the invite where you guys can go and post this. I think you're in your second. Um, are you in your second print of this?
1: I am. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, he's in the second print. So that's great. He said, so we want to make sure he gets into his tent print right <laughs> so um you know Dominic just tell everyone just a little bit about yourself um, i already gave your bio but um just tell us uh, wh- where are you living now um what are you doing and then we'll just jump into everything
1: yeah so i'm in chicago right now um born and raised in the metro illinois area uh, through undergrad, went to undergrad to Georgia State University, where I did a double major in history and African American studies. Went up to the Appalachian Mountain region after that. Um, did a mm-hmm. master's in U.S. history, and then went to Chicago uh, for seminary. Taught at the seminary, then left to go to Oakland uh, to serve as congregational pastor at two different multi-ethnic churches. Um, and then came back to Chicago to take this national role as the director of racial righteousness and reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church.
0: Right, and so you're a product of the Atlanta, the A.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah, LA. right. And your
0: and your mom, she has she's a pastor here, right? She has a church
1: here. She, she is. She's a pastor in the Bluff community, so right downtown by the dome.
0: Okay, great, great. I know another pastor that's down in that area. Um, Yeah, yeah, so great So now I want to find out What was the, I know for even for me There's always I know a lot of this, we can see the threads Of um, What God was doing in your life You know, if you count back to High school, middle school, you can see some of the threads But that thing to get you To step out and write this Book and to actually, I think before You wrote the book, you were actually doing Presentations on this Subject already you know, yeah. and so the yeah. book came from your presentation. What was the catalytic event that really caused you to say, "You know what, I'm going to write a book about it"? Um, I know we've, we we will talk a little bit about the difference between your book and the New Jim Crow and Just Mercy and all that. What was that catalytic event for you that really prompted you to write this book? Yeah, um, so
1: the broadest answer is um, well, the broadest answer for what really compelled me to write the book is the church's silence on the matter. Um, Uh But I think the particular catalytic moment for me was my senior year in undergrad. uh, There was a case that happened 10 miles away from my campus where a community was jurisdictively zoned as a no knock warrant community, which is a community where officers don't have to display a warrant before invading the premise of a house. And the logic behind no-knock warrants is that they're given in communities that are stigmatized as uh, epicenters for drug trafficking. And so an officer says that they need to be able to invade the premise quickly before people can destroy drugs and drug paraphernalia. And okay. so in this case, uh, there was a community uh, that was zoned as such, and an officer had said he had been staking out a house for a couple months and knew that it was part of the epicenter of drug trafficking in the community. And so him and two other officers uh, invaded the house at three o'clock in the morning um, without uniforms and didn't display a warrant. When they invaded the house, they invaded it with their guns drawn, and they ultimately deployed 39 bullets and fatally struck the resident of the house, who was a 92-year-old grandmother by the name of Catherine Johnston. Um, They fatally struck her five times. She died in cold blood in her living room. And after they searched the house, there were no drugs nor any drug paraphernalia in the entire house. So the three officers freaked out. How do, the, how do we legitimate what just transpired? And so they conspired to uh, cover up their transgressions by planting drugs throughout our house.
0: So they plant, and I remember this, being from Atlanta, being living in Atlanta when this happened, I was actually living here. And it was just the weirdest case where you're saying a 92-year-old woman had drugs in her home. And, exactly. and I remember all the controversy um, about the case. And just tell us, you know, you, I know you go on in your book to talk about this case, but tell us, you know, like what came out of um, this particular case with Miss Katherine Johnson.
1: Yeah. So the officers, uh, they, they came to a story and they stuck to it. Um, and they basically lied about everything that transpired. And they continued to lie after the case went to court. And it wasn't until they realized that they were caught red-handed that they finally confessed to everything acknowledged that they lied that they planted drugs and they did the whole nine and what was most disturbing was that the officers when they were sentenced after they've confessed to everything did a fraction of the time that Captain johnston would have done if she actually had been involved in the drug trafficking and gotten arrested by those officers and so my my professors said that, you know, as concerned citizens in my African-American studies program, we had an ethical and moral responsibility to go and advocate for uh, vulnerable people in communities like Katherine Johnston. And that we had an ethical responsibility to step up and make our voices heard. And I was like, yeah, that's true. That's good. That's right. But then I had to take a step back because my faith community wasn't calling me to the same kind of civic engagement. Mm. And I really was disturbed by that. And I said, if anything should compel me to stand up for the rights of the least of these and vulnerable people, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ, not my academic institution. And so that was really the seed that was planted that ultimately
0: manifested into this book. Okay, wow. I mean, that story, just even hearing the account and some of the good that's coming out of this because this was that was a turning point for you to say i need to stick up for the vulnerable in in my community so i'm not supposed to turn a blind eye or be silent with that um now now we've we've read a couple books i know um your book is a lot different but we've had two major books come out about um, I mean there's more than two, but the two that have gotten a lot of attention um dealing yeah. with mass incarceration is Michelle Alexander's um New Jim Crow and Brian Stevenson um Just Mercy. Now, with these two books, I want you to tell me what's the difference between um Rethinking Incarceration and the two books prior um that we've had about mass incarceration.
1: Yeah, I say there's three real fundamental differences um mm-hmm. the first is both of those books really start the conversation about mass incarceration around 1970 with the launch of the war on drugs i yeah. say that if we're going to talk about the mass incar the evolution of mass incarceration and particularly the evolution of mass incarceration for black bodies uh we have to start right after reconstruction ends um and so i take it way back and actually explain how Convict leasing really is the earliest manifestation of mass incarceration that we have in our nation. And for okay. people who don't know about convict leasing, just briefly, it was a system in which there were laws that were established during slavery called slave codes that were reinscribed after Reconstruction to be reapplied specifically to Black people throughout the South. And Black people were arrested in mass because of these laws, and then they were literally rented out to... Uh, corporations and plantation owners who previously owned slaves before, and they were literally back on the same plantations doing the same work for the same people, for the same no pay, uh, because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery is abolished in our nation except as a consequence for a crime. And so... One of the things that people should know about convict leasing was that it wasn't this just small thing that a couple of states were, you know, into lightly. In um, one year, I talked about how the state of Alabama, 73% of the state's economy came from convict leasing. Wow. So this literally was what sustained the southern economy after slavery was abolished, and so that is a critical critical piece of us understanding mass incarceration in a fuller um, way. And so that's the first distinction. The second distinction is that both of those books really talk about mass incarceration uh, being manifested through the pipeline of the war on drugs. Um, And they really talk about, particularly Michelle, she really talks about the war on drugs and focuses on the war on drugs. Brian expands the conversation a little bit, Mm -hmm. but My, my book says that there's actually five pipelines that are funneling people into incarceration. Yes, the war on drugs as a major conduit, but also there's the school to prison pipeline. Um, There is the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities. The fourth would be the privatization of prisons and how lucrative mass incarceration has become, particularly being one of the most bought and sold stocks on Wall Street right now. Um, And after the new administration came into power, it was predicted by CBS Money um, News and by one of the top executives of SunTrust that private prisons will be one of the top five most lucrative investments that people can make over the next four years. And wow. that is directly connected to the fifth pipeline, which I say is a parallel pipeline to the war on drugs that we just have yet to um, coin this phrase. But
0: I say that there's been a war on immigration that's been launched in our nation. And we're going to come back to those because I want you to expound on um, some of those pipelines that you talked about. Um, yeah, we're going to... I want to just pause there for uh, for one second. Um, but when you were talking about... Um, the, the the war on drugs so yours goes beyond that now we, we talk a lot about justice and what our role should be as you know as a part of the capital C church as far as advocating where do you see um, just your book covers a, a, just a, a, wide, a wide theological framework on the church's role um, why the church should be involved and why the church should be advocating in this can you um, expound on that a little
1: bit too. Yeah. And I'll just say that this is the third major reason why my book is different and the most important reason why my book is different. Um, The whole first half of my book does the historical social analysis. And I tried to do a really rigorous analysis that is on par with books that you'll find in the secular world. Mm -hmm. But The whole second half is about the church's responsibility and relationship to mass incarceration. And so I particularly wrote this book for the church to center this conversation for the body of Christ. And um, within that, um, yeah, the church has a moral, ethical responsibility to be engaged in the criminal justice system from everywhere, ranging from. Matthew 25 as the starting place where, you know, I think it's so funny. Matthew 25 literally says that all Christians have a responsibility to be engaged in what's going on behind bars. Um, Not social justice oriented Christians, not progressive Christians. It says all Christians. And and Jesus is so passionate about that, that he says that when we're going behind bars, we're not just being present with the least of these, but we're present with Jesus himself. And so I oftentimes say, that I only had to write this book because we haven't been present with Jesus behind wow. us Because if we were being present with Jesus, we would know. But I say we don't know because we don't go. And because <laughs> we haven't gone, and we haven't taken that passage seriously, and we haven't taken it seriously, Hebrews 13.3 that says that we are supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we ourselves right. were incarcerated. Um, because right. we haven't done that, um, we really don't know um the ways in which the image of God is being defaced on a daily basis behind bars um from everything ranging from solitary confinement where there are ninety thousand people every day locked up in uh nine uh eight by 12 inch cell where they're locked Mm -hmm. in isolation and darkness for 23 of the 24 hours of the day Mm -hmm. and we call that incarceration but that's really torture these people are given access to human contact and sunlight for one hour a day Um, And we know that um, solitary confinement has irreversible cognitive impacts on people. Literally, neuroscientists say that it dehumanizes a person. Mm -hmm. And so when we know these kind of realities are happening on a daily basis behind bars, uh, as Christians, we have a moral and ethical responsibility to actually go be ambassadors of reconciliation and the good news in the midst of that kind of dehumanizing reality. But there are a plethora of ways, um, you know, from (laughs) the fact that, you know, there are 14 states right now in our nation who don't have a minimum age for trying juveniles as adults. And Mm. because of that, there have been kids as young as eight years old who have been sentenced as adults within within our nation's history. And when a child is sentenced as adult, they are not eligible to get their record expunged before they... uh, turn 18. They also are more likely to get more severe sentencing, and they're more likely to be housed in adult facilities. Even And we know that when juveniles are housed in adult facilities, they're more likely to be sexually assaulted, and they're also more likely to commit suicide during their incarceration or shortly thereafter. And so there are a plethora of problems within our system, and Christians have a responsibility to hold our system accountable and to what it proclaims to be a system, a place where people go and they do get rehabilitated. But right now, our system is not rehabilitating people; it is actually uh, dehumanizing and exploiting them for their work. Uh, most people don't really realize how much labor takes place behind bars and how many people are being exploited for their job, I mean, for their labor to the point that you have corporations and businesses that are everyday names who are um, financially profiting off of what's going on behind bars. And you have some people who've worked for companies for 10 and 15 years behind bars and they become proficient at their job, and literally, when they get released from prison, they go to those same companies and apply for a job, and they get denied access to a job because of their criminal record. So, what that wow. company is blatantly saying is that your labor is only desirable when it's exploitable, because prisoners make about $2 a day, wow. and after they're released, they would have to pay them real
0: uh, wages. Wow.
1: Is there a way,
0: I know when we talk about the privatization of 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 prisons, um, I know that there was a judge in Virginia, like a couple years ago. I don't know if you remember this story, but um, he actually had investment in a juvenile detention center, and he was actually for twenty five years sending. Um, kids for minor offenses to um, this juvenile um, detention center. So they were trying to go back and overturn, you know, um, some of his cases. And so now I know a lot of us, you know, you have IRAs or you have investments. Is there a way to check and see, you know, to make sure, I think this is something tangible that people can do to make sure that their investments are not Part of their investments, you know, when you're talking about this is one of the top ways people are earning money. um, Some of us may be invested in some of those systems and not even knowing that our portfolio portfolio includes, you know, um, this uh, investment into um, prisons and privatization of prisons.
1: Yeah, there are some activists who have really traced the money trail and they are actually exposing all of the corporations and entities, um, banks and uh, investment companies and also um, insurance companies who are implicated in this. And so I'll come back after the chat and on the, okay. uh, on the page and I'll actually uh, type in some of those places that are doing that work so people Look. can research that.
0: Thank you. And you, one of the things you talked about is the war on drugs, and I know we've talked about some of the myth and the, you know really how that started stirring in 1968. And if we look at what was happening in 1968, here you are on the the heels of the civil rights movement, where um, you had um, you know immigration uh, was was passing all this legislation as it related to um, people of color, housing, fair housing, all these things were happening. And then, like, there was this response. Um, can we talk a little bit about the myth and what it did and um, how it's affecting us now? And even how, even as a person of color, have we put, we played into this, this same um, um, falsehood, you know, how we've um, implemented our own in this
1: too? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I think,
0: you got my brain going, you got my brain going. Yeah. Just answer as much as yeah, you can. Yeah, no, I talk <laughs> about it later. Yeah, no,
1: I think it's a critical question because I think a lot of the ways in which, and you know, part of it was just timing. So nice. the, the unfortunate death lent bias in the way that they were able to sensationalize crack after that, and to depict it as this, this drug that was not only killing our best and our brightest, but it was also this drugs that was making everyday people who weren't you know represented as our best and brightest brightest to become these violent, deviant. Criminals, um, mm-hmm. to use a you know more contemporary term, super predators, who were going to be unleashed on our neighborhoods and actually um, rape and pillage our communities and our children, and and so there was this way in which crack was so sensationalized that we um, within the black community also um, bought into a lot of the media propaganda and the rhetoric, and yes. Um, Clearly, um, no one wants people who are addicted to drugs um, just out there, especially when the drugs, you know, incentivize them to be more violent. Um, There has to be ways in which all of our communities care about that and engage that problem. But the way that we chose to engage the problem was to really dehumanize people who had criminal uh, chemical addictions, and instead of responding to help them get the medical tr- interventions that they needed, we used it as a political expedient way for people to uh, advance their uh, political careers, and that happened in both the Black and the white community. This wasn't just something that um,
0: black
1: people were um, guilty of, and so... But I think what's been important is that you've seen so many of those people who were implicated come out and, like, blatantly say the war on drugs was a failure, and their response was completely miscalculated, and they didn't understand the damage and the harm that it was going to do. But in light of that, there's still politicians who are clinging to those same kind of punitive strategies and responses to crimes, even though medical professionals... And police chiefs um, in major cities are flat, flat out saying, we cannot incarcerate ourselves out of this problem. People need medical interventions, not incarceration.
0: So. Yeah. And so I think it's like what your book is calling, especially Christians, too, is that third space. And yeah. it's like you're calling us to this place of mercy and empathy. And. Um, you know, and I know you give some. We'll get to some of the solutions that you have um, in your book. But one of the things that stood out when you were talking about um, these pipelines, there's two things I wanted to bring out. Uh, one was the immigration increase, and I think um, some people we we we're seeing an immigration in, increase now, but immigration has been increasing for a while, and I think you give a percentage uh, about that, and I wanted you to. Um, Talk, talk a little bit about that and and who is it affecting more um, when we talk about that
1: yeah, yeah, I think it's important uh that you raise that because there's immigrants coming into this country all from all over the world uh, but there's a right. certain immigrant that is being depicted as you know violent rapists and criminals and drug lords and all these kind of things and so we can't we can't dismiss the way in which Brown people who are coming into our country from the southern part of uh, the country, we can't act as if when we talk about immigration, we're talking about all immigrants. We're talking particularly mm-hmm. about um, immigrants from South America and Mexico. And we are criminalizing them in ways that really dehumanize them and actually depict them as these violent, sinister beings who are just coming here. Um, for um, economic gain and to destroy and deplete the resources of our nation. And so, uh, but from 1990 to 2000, there was a 610% increase in the number of immigration arrests. And Mm. a lot of people would be shocked to realize that in 2010, A Democrat. And I think this is important because when we talk about mass incarceration, there are ways in which we can play this kind of partisan politics game where we just say it's all about the Republicans actually um, criminalizing people of color. But we have to take seriously the fact that mass incarceration is a bipartisan agenda, and both parties have been culpable and have used uh, law and order rhetoric as a politically expedient way to gain access to power. Um, But in 2010, there was a Democrat by the name of Robert Byrd who introduced a federal bed mandate um, requiring 34,000 immigrants on average nightly to be detained by ICE. And we know that there's a direct correlation between the war on immigration and private prisons because 90 percent of prisoners who are held in, I mean, 90% of the people who are detained for immigration offenses are held in private prisons. Oh, wow. 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 And, and um, the and other thing of that you that right of- now. okay, I'm sorry, Go well, ahead. No, I was just going to say, and because of that right now, we know that it's predicted that um, an African-American man, one in three, will spend time behind bars in their lifetime, but the number, because of the war on
0: immigration for Hispanic males, is one in six. Wow. Wow. I was going to the other thing that you you talk about is um, the juvenile uh, mischief and like typical juvenile behavior being criminalized. And I look at that um, and you're talking about, you know, teens who are. You know who their cognitive development is not you know fully grown they're not adults so we can't expect them to act and think and make decisions like adults and so we have scientific you know evidence that helps us understand you know their frontal lobe is developing and all these different things but the way um that they you know when we have school resource officers or if we have um, you know things that are happening now. We're seeing this implicit bias, and we're also seeing the criminalization of our youth. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I and I, and there's two cases that I think of um, is you know some of is the pool incident that happened in McKinney, Texas, and yeah, then the yeah. other incident that happened in South Carolina with the young girl. This was dealing with uh, rowdy teens. One basically. And the Mm -hmm. other one was dealing with um, a cell phone. Yeah. You you know, and these are like, we criminalize, you know, I want you to talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so in those cases, you had Eric Case Bolt and Ben Fields were the two officers. And in in both cases, um, it points to a disturbing trend that we see in particular with um, officers and young women of color Where there is this excessive force that is used by, in both of these cases, white officers against young, vulnerable women of color, who, I mean, excuse me, girls of color. I don't want to even, because they're girls. Um, And they, you know, in one a girl is snatched out of the desk and dragged across the floor. And then the other, the officer repeatedly forces his knee into her back, slamming her face into the ground. And you see this way in which, um, the, the lack of accountability and, and, but I think particularly when we look into the McKinney case, the McKinney case actually sparked people to actually go back into the schools and see how often, um, School resource officers actually are receiving zero training on the difference of what, yeah, it means, what it means to police out on the streets and what it means to police in schools. And because of that, literally, you are seeing the criminalization of juvenile mischief in ways that, It's being treated as criminal behavior out on the streets. And so I went back and I did some more research after I found out about that study. And I found that at least 91% of school resource officers in our schools throughout the nations have literally received no training on cognitive development, early childhood brain development. And what does it mean to police differently, uh, to serve as a policing presence in schools versus out on the streets?
0: So it's like we're putting the students in a bad position, but also police officers in a bad um, position because we're not equipping them with the necessary information to really do their job more effectively. So they're responding to the students as they would a criminal on the street.
1: Exactly. And this is one of the ways that I say that the church can really step up through its civic engagement. We can actually petition and advocate for all school resource officers in our community to go through training uh, about cognitive development and early childhood uh, brain development so that they can more appropriately serve as a presence of peace in our school as opposed to what really usually manifests itself as a kind of colonizing presence that is actually really detrimental to disproportionately students of color in impoverished communities where they are at schools with little to no resources. And so one of the real um, interesting things about the whole conversation, though, is that when we The whole reason why officers were put in schools was because there was an acknowledgement that there was this rift between communities and police, and they were trying to build better relationships between officers and children, so children could actually learn to grow up and see officers as trustworthy and people that they go to when they actually need help. But then after the epidemic of school shootings started happening, particularly with Columbine and Sandy Hook, The role of officers fundamentally shifted, and they were asked to now start actually serving as disciplinarians within school. And you also see um, one of the things I trace in the book is that there has been this huge rise in the way in which we have outsourced school discipline as opposed to dealing with it in-house as it was when you and I were going to school. When we got in trouble, we got in-house suspension, and things were dealt with inside the school, But what you're seeing now is uh, there's been this pattern in which school discipline has been outsourced and people are increasingly being suspended, expelled, and arrested for uh, violations of school conduct as opposed to having it dealt with in school. And the increased presence of police in school has led to a disproportionate number of students being arrested. And police are disproportionately allocated to schools that are... uh, Low in so lower socioeconomic uh, neighborhoods and honestly, who don't have resources like um, speech and language pathologists um, and school counselors. And so the schools that literally already have the least are receiving the most overt kind of policing in ways that are leading people disproportionately into the prison um industrial complex. So I talk about how you have this trajectory where you have kids who are going to poor, underfunded, decrepit schools who are actually leading this pipeline into um, brand new high-tech, innovative prisons. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take seriously the way in which that is continuing to manifest itself. And the
0: church has to serve as a holy disruption to that pipeline. Right. And I think I I heard you say that we have more um, prisons and juvenile detention centers than we have um, degree-earning institutions. Yeah. So right
1: now in our nation, we have more jails, detention centers, and prisons than we do degree-granting institutions throughout our nation. Um, because of that, wow. in many states throughout the country, particularly in the southeast, there are more people who are living behind
0: bars than who are living on college campuses. Wow. Wow. And uh, while we're here, I want us to because I know there's people that are listening and you're like, you know, we when we talk about this word justice and um, I, you've mentioned it a couple times, but I want you just to maybe um, explain uh, punitive and um, retribution justice versus restorative justice, because what we're talking about, um, biblical justice is that that restores. And I want you to um, just if you can just um, give us a little uh, theological framework on, on that, if you can.
1: Yeah, so our present system, our criminal justice system right now says that justice is made manifest when a punishment for a crime is distributed. So literally, there is a direct equivalency within our criminal justice system that justice equates to punishment. Um, And that's not biblical. And so when we actually look at scripture, what we see is that justice entails people being held accountable for their violations through relationships of accountability. And through those relationships of accountability, the possibility of reconciliation and restoration is made possible. But through those relationships of accountability, there are people who walk with the offender in ways that help hold them true to the confessions and the repentance that they make. But then ultimately justice is established when Offenders are reintegrated into society in healthy ways. Um, And so restorative justice actually says that crime is never just a violation against an individual, but crime also always has a social component to it. And so if crime is social, then when we actually talk about accountability, then we have to actually bring the community into the conversation. Because the other thing that happens with our criminal justice system right now, the victim is completely muted. The victim has no say or no voice in regards to what punishment looks like, reconciliation looks like, or healthy reintegration looks like. Uh, Restorative justice says that since crime is a communal offense, the community has to be part of deriving what the solution looks like. And so it is only once a victim feels safe and comfortable enough to move to this process, but restorative justice ultimately confronts the victim with the narrative of the offender, i mean uh confronts the offender with the victim actually being able to speak directly to the uh offender and let the offender know the implications of their offense and they actually get to speak directly to them and in that that has been proven to actually soften the heart and wait awaken the victim i mean the offender to the implications of what they've done and in that reconciliation is made possible in a new way but also uh, restorative justice in the name it says for justice to actually be made that restoration has to happen and so um biblical justice is about how god is at work in the world where god is actually um leading to reconciliation to God first, then oneself, and then to one's neighbor, and ultimately into the, the community. And so I, I break this down uh, looking at a number of different Bible verses, but one of the uh, one of the ones I'll just go through real quick is uh, Numbers 12. And so in Numbers 12, you get the first example of skin color prejudice in Scripture. And you actually have two leaders of the church who are bluntly... Um, <laughs> Basically, they they anti-black. And so in their anti-blackness, they actually, Miriam and um, Aaron, they actually are uh, blaspheming against uh, Moses because he chooses to marry a Cushite woman. And Cushites were notorious for their black skin. And so they actually get mad at Moses because he decides to marry this woman and they start to actually speak against him in the community. Uh, God is so offended by this that God actually comes down and summons a meeting between the three church leaders and actually calls Miriam and Aaron to account for what they've done. And in this instance, it's it's funny, you get to see part of God's sense of humor in this story because Miriam is so angry, but God's like, well, if you don't like black so much, (laughs) um, you know, what's the opposite of black really and it's not just white but it's like a lepers a leopardess white and right. ultimately miriam gets leprosy which yeah. actually tell, turns you white like stillborn white um and she has to go outside of the community for a week but what's so powerful about this story and this is where restorative justice kicks in is now, one, when the offense happens, Moses, because Moses is the man of God that he is, <laughs> he actually goes and he turns to God and actually prays on behalf of Miriam and Aaron who have just blaspheming him and actually, um, you know, coming at his wife the wrong way. Um, but instead of, you know, holding a grudge against them or being mad, I mean, being happy that God, you know, has given Miriam this, this consequence, he actually petitions God on their behalf and actually asks for God to have grace on them and forgiveness. And God you know, here's Moses's uh, plea, but he says that there's still a punishment required for their sinfulness. Right. And so Miriam has to go outside of the community. And then at that point, Aaron ultimately confesses to his sin. And after a week goes by, Miriam is able to be reintegrated in the community. But what's so powerful is that the, the whole community doesn't move forward without Miriam. The whole community has to stay still until Miriam is ultimately reintegrated into society. And so you see this restorative justice because it's justice because they were held accountable for what they did through uh, relationships of accountability but God ultimately says that there was still a punishment that was warranted. And so restorative justice doesn't say that people get away with crime or they're soft on crime. There is accountability but ultimately says justice in and of itself is never manifested until the community is restored and people are reintegrated in full healthy ways. And so I I think that's a big fundamental shift from what our criminal justice
0: system is presently doing in the world today. Cool. And I love the way in your book, you talk about justice and righteousness. Um, Mm -hmm together, being oneness, you know, in yeah. that. And you you explain that. Um, you guys will have to read the book to um, know more about that. But he really <laughs> talks about righteous relationships. And I think there's this other thing where, you know, sometimes we can um, dislike, um, you know, and look down on those that are in prison. And like you're saying, we're all called you know, to, to the prisons in that, in that sense. And I, and I think about there's, um, I think I heard you say um, something about, you know, talking about just how many people throughout scripture that were in prison or people (laughs) that should have been in prison where uh, mercy and grace was given. And, you know, if we talk about how much of the new Testament was written from behind cell walls, you know, um, just share a little bit about that yeah the church
1: has really failed to really grapple with the inherent connection between scripture and mess uh, most people don't realize the four books of the bible were written in the midst of incarnation um we literally only have the book of colossians one of paul's disciples constantly came back to work and visited prison and it was through those letters while incarcerated, that he was actually pastoring the church in the city into faithfulness because they were backsliding and their orthodoxy was going um, to the wayside. And in the midst of his incarceration, Paul is actually writing letters to the church and actually pastoring them, reminding them who God is and what it means to be faithful to the gospel. And so that is just such a powerful story. But I think even in addition to that, like the reality is, I like to say, you know, there is no gospel without prisoners. Like, literally, if we take all the incarcerated people out of the Bible, there is no Bible. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> the author and perfector of our faith, who was falsely incarcerated and ultimately sentenced to the death penalty. Um, if you take him away, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, you take him away. Um, you take away John the Baptist, uh, Hananiah the seer, um You take away uh, Joseph, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, um, Samson, the list goes on and on and on. It's just like if we at the early church would have responded to criminals the way we do, literally there would be no good news to pass on. There would be no gospel to inherit. And I think that's so critical for us as Christians, because we live into this kind of theology of or even this philosophy of meritocracy in America mm-hmm. and I mean, particularly in North America where we say you know you, you get what you deserve but if mm-hmm. anybody should understand the fallacy of we get what we deserve it should be Christians because we know that if we got what we would deserve <laughs> we would eternally separated from God and destined to be a (laughs) nation. And so we should get that you don't actually get what you deserve, but it's literally only through grace that we are part of the family of God because scripture tells us that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. So Jesus didn't say... Well, I waited for them to get their act together and them to be, you know, good, upstanding citizens, and then I died for them. Jesus died for us, Scripture says, while we were yet enemies of God. And so if we are only part of the family of god through the because of the grace of god if that grace doesn't mark how we respond to people when they violate the law then i say that we actually forfeit our birthright as christians we forget who we are and whose we are and when when that happens we actually start to embrace punitive responses to crime um and the rhetoric of law and order and get tough on crime and three strikes you're out. And even we support capital punishment. And that's one of the things I point to in the book is you would think that Christians would think differently about capital punishment, given that our faith revolves around Jesus, who again, was falsely incarcerated and put to death by the state. But unfortunately Christians have been some of the staunchest supporters of uh, the capital punishment. And I just say it's re- it's a real failure of our discipleship.
0: Wow. And you go, I mean, you guys, he goes into atonement and sanctifying retribution. He talks about, he goes deep with um, <laughs> just our church fathers and where some of this Thoughts. These thoughts come from within our theology. He um, goes through Augustine's contribution um, to the um, penal substitution. Um, he goes. I mean, I mean, he talks about where this stuff starts. Like, why, as evangelicals, or why, as Christians, we think. Um, in this way and why we're not set apart in this, why we aren't that third space, why we, you know, I recently heard, I'm not going to say any names, <laughs> but I just heard someone, uh, they were talking about, um, you know, there's this big thing with meth, you know, but the, the messaging is a little different uh, with, with meth and, and the meth, the there's more of grace and mercy, which it should be. With the same yeah, thing should yeah. have been done with um with crack, yeah. you know, but it wasn't. Yeah. So yeah. you know, yeah. but when you were talking about they were talking about the drug dealers and you know, and it was like, you know, we should we need to give the drug dealers the death penalty. And people were cheering. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah. first of all, we see this disproportion and we know we live in an unjust society. And we live in a ju- within a justice system that is not the same for everyone. And so yep. when I'm hearing this, I know the color of the people that will be put to death is something like this um, passes, you know, and, and who's to say, you know, um, you know, you have the situation, um that we talked about with Catherine, you know, where people are, they plant drugs, you know, just just all kinds of things when, because we live in a simple, broken, unjust society, you know, and this is my personal opinion is that we don't have the right To take someone's life, you know, not within within an unjust society that we live in, you know, so we can talk more about that later. We can go on and on. But I'm telling you guys, he goes into this so we can really get underneath um, just the the, just the thought process. And, you know, um, one of the things I always like to tell people, too, is that, you know, justice is mentioned, you know, when you in the Bible over 200 times, it's important to God. And so therefore, and when we're talking about justice and righteousness, we're talking about the restorative component of this. So it should be important to us too, you know. Um, So what should churches like? What should be um, a church's witness and testimony? How does grace um, trump this this law thing? You know, you talk a little bit about that in your book. How does grace trump law and. And what would you like to see uh, the church's testimony be and become? Yeah, I think
1: it's. I think this is a critical question, particularly around capital punishment. So I talk about the the passage where Jesus encounters the adulterous woman, where um, and this is the only time we really see Jesus intervene in, in this way with this question at at hand besides when he himself is executed. Um but Jesus comes in and literally the law said that she should be stoned and killed. And that where the law demanded bloodshed, Jesus comes in and in search grace. Um, and he actually says, you know, let you who, you know, is you know, capable of judging this person, which no one is, um, cast the first stone. And, I, you know, that's one of the things I talk about where I agree with you. We don't have the capacity to take life because there's only one just judge. Um, and any of our judgments are partial and biased, um, all people. And, you know, one of the things evangelical churches failed to really grapple with, we all talk about the fact that, you know, we all believe in individual sin and we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. But we don't really talk about if we are all fallible people and individual sin is a reality, uh, what happens when fallible people get in charge of powerful institutions and structures and government? Mm. That simpleness oozes out into the structures that they steward, and bias becomes a, a real reality. And, you know, we have um, Brian Stevenson likes to say that we presently have a criminal justice system that works better for you if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Mm. And, and we have to really grapple with um, how fundamentally broken our criminal justice system is around, along racial and um, class lines. And until we have that conversation, until we really talk about the fact that Black men represent 6.5% of the U.S. population, but 40.2% of the incarcerated population, what, what does that mean? There's been this way in which we have linked criminality and blackness and criminality and Latino-ness right now. Um, And we have to have real conversations about how our theological imagination has become so distorted in the way in which pigmentation has been so fundamentally linked to criminality. Um, And until we have those conversations, then we will cease to be the kind of ambassadors of reconciliation the scripture calls us to be. And so, but your question, um, I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent real quick. No, so you, were <laughs> you were
0: preaching, you were preacher. I mean, what is your hope, let's, let's you know, like, yeah. what is your hope yeah. um, f- for the church? And you give some solutions of some things yeah. that churches can do and how we can be involved in um this you know kind of swimming um downstream is versus you know or or upstream um to kind of catch some of these um kids before things happen and they fall into this this system that this unjust system you know what are some practical things that you that you would like to see and some of the things that we see happening that some churches are already doing yeah
1: so um there are a number of things I say that there are four ways that all churches should be, uh, there, all churches can be involved in. I say every single church should be involved in at least one of these four ways. The first is prevention. Um, you can find the closest school to you that you know is under resourced, that where you know that teachers who are already getting paid too little are literally having to take money out of their own pockets to buy school supplies for their kids. Uh, you can find that school. And you as a church can adopt that school and you can start to leverage some of your socioeconomic resources and your social capital to actually help level the playing field for students in that school. Um, You can volunteer at that school. You can do mentoring. You can do counseling. You can do tutoring. Um, One of the things when I moved out to Oakland, California, one of the things I was shocked by when I got out there, Thirty-three percent of the elementary schools did not have functional libraries because they did not have the budget to pay librarians. So what what happened was there was a nonprofit in the area, a faith-based nonprofit in the area, that pulled congregants and actually had congregation members who were willing to volunteer their time, and that allowed schools to reopen their libraries. And so there are creative ways church can be involved like that. But the other thing that happens is when you find that school and you get a part of schools like that, oftentimes you're going to find that there's a disproportionate number of students in those schools who actually are on free and reduced lunches. Um, But what we never ask when we talk about students who are on free and reduced lunches is what happens to those students during the holidays when school is not in session or during the summertime Mm -hmm. when there is no If that's the only nutritious meal they get all day, where do they get their substance from? Most people don't realize that the church can actually volunteer to serve as a summer feeding program, and they can actually step up and fill that void throughout the entire summer. And they can actually build these life-giving relationships with students where they're meeting the physical needs, but they're also um, establishing a relationship where, you know, we can actually start to help them understand their need for living water. But it can't just all be about evangelism because there are people who really have desperate needs out there in the world. and the church has a responsibility to step up and fill those gaps too. Um, And people will know if you're just doing something just to evangelize to them, we have to love people. And when we love people, that's what opens people's hearts up to actually hearing the truth of the gospel and their need for who God is. And so that's one way. Um, The second way we should all be involved, um, like Matthew 25 says, we go behind bars. Um, When we actually go behind bars, things change. I mean, things change because these are no longer statistics. They're no longer just, you know, specs that you hear. But these are relationships. These are faces. These are names. These are people. These are people who, when you see the news and you see something about abuse in prison, you actually start to care because you're actually proximate to the suffering. And so the church has to learn to get proximate to the suffering. Um, the third thing that we could do, and the other, it's an overlooked piece We oftentimes don't talk about families with incarcerated loved ones. But what would it look like for the church to actually step up and actually walk alongside of people who are trying to readjust the life now that they're missing mom, dad, brother, sister? These are vital members of family structures. And when they are taken away, there's this huge gap and families are trying to scramble to fill that gap. The church has a way in which we can walk alongside of people, support people, love people, create space um, for them to lament those realities, but also say that, you know, you don't have to care this burden alone. We can walk alongside of you and support you in this. And then the last one is in the process of reentry. entry um, mm-hmm. So many people are released with $35 and a bus pass, and they're saying, good luck in life. Go, go figure it out. Um, and they don't have anybody who who is really willing and able to come alongside of them. And one of the really grave realities you hear when you talk to people and walk with people who've been incarcerated, they'll talk about how so many churches are so anxious to go back behind bars initially to do the, the proselytizing, to actually help, you know, evangelize them. But they'll say, as soon as I gave my life to Christ, You know, nobody was interested in really walking with me doing discipleship, and they sure weren't anywhere to be found when I got released. And so what would it look like for churches to actually do the work it needs to do to actually be able to receive people upon being released? I mean, literally at the gate. Go meet people as soon as they're released, take them in, walk alongside of them, and actually integrate them into your community. And you can't love these people from a distance. You have to actually do the internal work of actually destigmatizing people and, you know, exhuming some of your fears and some of your um, biases about who's incarcerated to the point that you can actually do healthy ministry. And if you do that hard work and you're able to walk alongside of people, love people, create space for people, do life on life discipleship with people, that's where the real transformation happens. But we can't do that if we're afraid of the incarcerated. And so those are four very tangible ways that we can be involved prevention in the midst of incarceration, walk alongside of families with incarcerated loved ones and during the reentry process. And I'll give you one more real tangible way, and that's through the foster care system Um, and not just um, not just through fostering um, kids because everybody can't do that. But what we know is that so for the state of California in particular, I'll give you an example. One of the things I talk about is we know that in the state of California, 70% of the incarcerated population comes out of the foster care system. And so the church has a 70%. And so the church has a very tangible way in which it can intervene in the system by actually showing love and support to foster care youth. Um, And we can actually intervene by particularly around the holidays because statistically foster care youth get in the most trouble around the holidays when their peers go and have these great times of family and fun and are lavish with love and gifts and they come back to school and they're all talking about it and they're all jovial about the experiences they had and a lot of foster care kids are coming back resentful about the fact that they didn't have these similar experiences that they felt abandoned they felt unloved these kind of realities and so The church can actually intervene tangibly by creating space within our homes, within our spaces of family, expand our definition of family, and create room for kids who aren't going to have that kind of love and affection. And actually, we can show them the love of Christ uh, through creating space for them. At our Christmas table, at our Thanksgiving table, um, during these high moments of you know familial time and celebration, uh, we should be looking to reestablish our family lines um, in ways that actually bear witness to who we are.
0: And I think I think that's the hope. I um, and I'll just share this. Um, I, when I was in Austin, one of the things I loved about Austin, they have a network of pastors, and they I th- they call it Abba, um, but it's a network of pastors. They do um, community outreach together, like the, the the churches do. And so there's over three hundred churches that are involved in this. And one of the things, one of their strategies is each church um, is is responsible for adopting um, a church, a school within this district, um, a title one school. And so, you know, they help with what, you know, back to school backpack school supplies um, so that kids that are transient, you know, when they come, they have a book bag to give them. They help with, um, you know, school carnivals, different things. And then also inviting that community, that, that school out to, um, maybe events and Easter egg hunks and different things that the church is also having. And so there's this relationship that develops in, um, within the school and church, um, um community. And that's a beautiful thing. And I, I think that is what you're getting at right here. Like, yeah. you know, this is kind of like when you look at this systemic system, we can look like, Oh my God, this is impossible to unravel. But, if we can unravel slavery, <laughs> if yeah, we can yeah. unravel, uh, you know Jim Crow, if we, you know we've unraveled some, some I mean some broken systems, and so we can't just say, oh, this is just too massive, and you know it's been around for you know a 100 years we just gotta you know when jesus comes everything will be all right you know yeah yeah. (laughs) but none of none of those systems were able to be
1: unraveled without the church awakening to its moral moral responsibility the church had taken to its role in the revolution and it had to take part in it and jump on the freedom caravan and right right now we have been asleep And we have allowed the caravan to pass us by, but we need the ethical and moral voice of the church to hold accountables of freedom. I mean, uh, movements of freedom accountable to the nonviolent kind of radical love of Jesus Christ that is made manifest through our witness when we are faithful to what scripture calls us to.
0: Okay, well, this has been great, Dominique. I love your words in this book, and like we said, read this is Dominique Gillard. Um, he's he wrote a book, um, "Rethinking Incarceration." It's great, y'all. We couldn't even go over um, just all of the things that's in this book. So hopefully, you guys will get this book um, tonight. Um, and I want to get give a challenge out to all. Um, you know, um, you know you know, to all the people who um, are out there, this MB, the bridge groups, you know, and all of this, those of you who are out there, you know, hey, you know, we talk about, you know, once you, sometimes you guys are, Looking at okay, what do I do after you know we finish the, the Be the Bridge curriculum? Um, we're going to be talking to a lot of different authors um, over the next few months. You know, doing one a month. This is um, this is a book right here that you can go through with your Be the Bridge group. You know, you can talk about this and really, you know, these are some things that you can start implementing in your church. It's easy to adopt the school, even if you can't get your church to do it. We are the church. You know, yeah. um, it could. Be you know you taking extra school supplies buy an, when you buy your kids supplies um, and buy them book bags buy an extra one and just donate it to the school so they have a you know there's a teacher that the student may need it um, you know I know some of you go and read to um, t- to the classrooms and um, um, mentor kids there's a lot of things adopting a child for from the foster care system for um, for the holidays and there's just so many things and uh, but. It, um he talks a lot about this and you guys are really creative. And so thank you for writing this, brother. Thank you for allowing God to use you and speaking truth um um to us and um uh, putting yourself out there because I know um as a black male this was not easy to write, you know, yeah. and I know this was yeah. a labor of love. I couldn't imagine um, you know, just the emotions that you're going through. Um, having to write something like that that affects you also personally, um, um, too. And so thank you, brother, for just um, sticking with this. I'm telling you guys, this is only a tip. Dominique is brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) He is brilliant. (laughs) I'm so glad to know you. Uh, We met through, um, through the Be The Bridge group. Uh, when yeah. we first was getting the group started, um, the, uh, the Facebook group started, um, you know, we've also met in person a couple times yeah. too. So, um, so it's been great. Uh, I, I followed the work that you're doing. Um, I, you know, congratulations on your new position in, um, in Chicago. But I think there's, you know, we don't have enough time for, for questions as much, but if you guys have, um, some questions, you can post it under the video. And I think you're going to come back and post um, a couple links of um, one of the questions that, um, that I said. And, you know, if you, if you feel like answering a couple of questions, you can, <laughs> or point people to the right direction or what he's going to do, he's going to point you out to his book. That's right. <laughs> he's going to say it's in the book because I think someone really wanted you, they wanted to hear more about the, um, the penal, um, Um, Some of the, I can't, I can't think of where I was in here. Um, Some Uh, of the penal substitution. substitution. There's a whole chapter in there on it. Yeah, there's a whole chapter right here. It's um, (laughs) chapter nine. And so yeah. so you can um you can go ahead and um and, and read more in depth about that. So thank you for being our first person um yeah. on our uh do the Bridge talk. And so we're planning to do more of these. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And let's go and change the world. Come on now, we can do this. We can unravel and dismantle and deconstruct all of this brokenness. So, um, thank you, um, um, Dominic. You have a good night, okay? You too. All right. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye -bye.
1: Thank you for listening to this. Be the bridge production. For more bridge building resources, visit our website at be the bridge dot com.